Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, coming to you actually from my childhood bedroom in West London, which is kind of thrilling. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Octavia. I love imagining that. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty fun. Um, I'm actually sitting in front of this wardrobe that from the outside looks like quite a kind of adult, nice thing, and, and on the inside has scrawled in Sharpie. I am a pretty piece of flesh from my teenage years above a mirror. That's so (laughs) you. I would have never written that as a teenager. Oh my God. I took a Sharpie to all of the furniture in my bedroom to my parents' great dismay. (laughs) But anyway, before we get into all of these revelations and more, let's get the business side of things out of the way. So our Patreon is now live. If you'd like to support our work and get access to an extra mini-sode each month, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash lit friction. Patrons can also make suggestions of themes for our mini-sodes. So if you'd like to hear us talk about something in particular, then sign up and we will try our best to build an episode around it. Within reason, guys, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, within reason. And for this month's Patreon mini-sode, we will be talking about how literary friction came to be after our patron Ailey suggested it as a theme. Right. So if you want to listen to that, then head over to Patreon and sign up. I mean, it's probably going to include the story of how our eyes met across a crowded pub in a small East Anglian town, isn't it? (laughs) A night I will never forget. (laughs) Anyway, how are you, Carrie? How's it going? I'm all right. We are recording this at the beginning of the bank holiday weekend. A lot of people on my street seem to be doing building work. So you may be hearing the sound of a kind of circular saw in the background, (laughs) but I'm sorry if that is the case. But I do have some plans to go to London for the day, which I haven't done since September, which seems crazy because I'm only actually an hour away by train. I'm going to sit in the freezing rain outside and see friends that I haven't seen in a very long time. And I'm just totally delighted about it. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? I'm I'm okay. I, there's also building works happening here. The the Great British Bank Holiday pastime, isn't it? DIY. Yeah. Oh, um, but sorry. I'm still I'm <laughs> I know grown. I'm still looking after my mum who had this big heart operation. I'm still at her place, but very pleased to say that the op was a success and she is getting better every day and she's just starting to be able to move around a bit more independently which is brilliant so yeah it's been quite full-on but I've actually I've been really enjoying being here Uh, my cat Lupo lives here and he's a dick and also great so (laughs) that's been fun Um, and she's got a really nice garden and she's not that far from the canal and I've found remembered actually walks I used to do as a teenager that I haven't done for years up into northwest London along the canal that I've been really enjoying so but I do think, you know, pretty much anything is good in this weather with the sun we've been having lately. Yeah, although it is meant to rain all weekend. Is it? I haven't yeah. looked. It's looking quite sunny out my window right now, but... Um... Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> You're going to bring your Macintosh. <laughs> I, I really am, yes. And I love Lupa. I'm so glad you guys are reunited. He is such a tart. <laughs> I feel He's... that Lupo and I have some kind of spiritual connection. Yeah, I think you guys do. His new thing is just to lie flat on his back with his legs splayed out and look at me through okay. his legs. It's I really like intense. I haven't done that that much. So maybe the spiritual connection ends before that particular <laughs> <laughs> gesture. But anyway, glad to hear it. Welcome to Minisode 20. Whether you're new to the show or an old hand, thanks for tuning in. 
The format for these mini-sodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately that are not books, with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. So, Octavia, let's get into it. What is our discussion going to be about today? Well, the suggestion for this theme was sent to us on Patreon by one of our lovely patrons called Agnes, who asked if we would talk about books as objects. So her question was, do you wreck your books or keep them clean, collect or donate, underline, read multiple at a time, structure and plan or go by mood, value physical books as objects or as vessels for thoughts and experiences? Which is a great question. Great question. Um, And something that I think I know you think about a lot. I I also find myself thinking about a lot. So let's start with obviously books are objects. They are. (laughs) But they are also, they're very unique in the way that they are at once an object, but also basically a portal to another universe. They're doorways to new thinking. They are adventures. They are escapes. They are teachings. I mean, there are so many things that books are that goes beyond the physical um, manifestation. And I think that's why the image of a pile of burning books will always be so violently shocking, like way more so than a picture of a pile of burning chairs or burning candlesticks or God knows what else, you know. As ever, when talking about literature, uh, a bunch of snobbery that comes into the room um, seems like it's very difficult to separate from sometimes. And I think um, about what people do with their books as objects or as we've talked about in the past, like whether they have books to begin with. I know a lot of people who have a pet peeve about the color coding trend mm-hmm. in how people organize books on shelves or the different ways right, that people choose to organize their books. I've seen like um, photos on Instagram of like interior designers who use books as a decorating tool um, and have them spines inwards. Yes, I've seen (laughs) that too. I feel like I have a pet peeve about that. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, yeah, I, I, it's a, it's an odd, it's an odd choice to me. I find it stressful. I would find it stressful to be in a room that was just pages facing outwards. Well, I guess it just means you're never going to read any of the books. How well, or maybe it? it would, maybe, maybe we're missing the point. And actually it creates a really dynamic way of reading because it's always potluck. <laughs> and it's like this gonzo relationship to your literature. I don't know. Maybe we're being narrow-minded. I'm sure that's what the decorators intended. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, I think that is a lot about class and privilege and educational privilege folded into this stuff too, which is really important to remember because, you know, there's a question, who can afford to buy books? And beyond that, who can afford to keep loads of books? You know, you might, you may um, be able to have books passing through your hands a lot, but do you have enough space? Can you afford to, to keep them all on your shelves? You know, I do think that there's a question around that, that often gets overlooked. Um, And this is why we have to give a glorious major shout out to the incredible power of libraries, right? Um, You can't really talk about books as objects without talking about libraries and how amazing they are and how tragic it is that they are getting consistently underfunded. But anyway, let's start out assuming that the books we're talking about here are objects that belong to us because what we're about to discuss are things that one should never do to a library book. (laughs) So my first question, Carrie Plitt, is do you write in the margins? Do you turn down the pages? Do you crack the spines of your books? Good question. Well, I've never treated any of my books with much reverence, I have to say. I do a lot of underlining and I love looking back at things that I've 
underlined in books. I sometimes write in the margins, although I'm not a big marginalia person. I don't make a lot of notes in the books that I'm reading. I kind of underline as I go along. Sometimes I do like exclamation points or a, a, a word or two or a little star. I definitely cracked the spines. When I was commuting and I would take paperbacks in my bag, my books got absolutely destroyed. I mean, they looked really bad when I was done with that process. I don't love folding down the pages and I'm not sure why. Maybe that there is a bit of reverence involved in that. It just, I just feel like it makes it, it's just too chaotic for me. (laughs) And once you fold down the page, it often like rips away eventually. And I don't know. I just, I don't like it. So I don't tend to do that. I will sometimes circle page numbers so I can flip through. I guess I'll do it at a pinch if I don't have like a a pen or a pencil with me, but I don't like doing it because then you can't even tell what on that page you meant to kind of highlight. Yeah, I don't know. How about you? I am a page folder downer, but I kind of have this weird system that I've developed over years that I actually have never really put into words. So it's, I'm going to see if I can explain it now. But basically, I write all over books, underline, write notes. I tend to put a single word in the top right hand corner or left-hand corner of a theme um, so that I can flick back and and find it easily because you know a lot of the time I'm reading for work so I'm reading with a view to kind of maybe going back to write about something or to talk about it but with the folding down pages yeah I have this weird system so I'll fold up the bottom corner of a page interesting if there's a particular citation I want to go back to especially if I don't have a pencil to mark it with but sometimes even if I do it'll be for emphasis like you really want to come back to this page, babe, kind of thing. And I'll turn down the top corner to mark my place. But also if there's a kind of more general thing I want to remember on that page rather than a specific citation. So I probably do the top top corner fold if it's like, this is like a theme that I'm interested in noticing when it's popping up throughout the book. Also, it's slightly different for nonfiction than fiction and definitely different with poetry. But in terms of like marking your place I like to shove something in it if I have a photo or a bookmark something I can use as a bookmark although I ne- I've never ever once used an official bookmark <laughs> I think I have like a rebellious reaction against <laughs> them it's so dumb um, but I have a friend who just remembers the page number that she's on which I find so insane as a concept and I have like a crazy respect for like she That's- could always say oh yeah I'm on page 99 I'm just going to go back to page 99. Isn't that that incredible? I know. My thing that I've discovered in my 30s is bookmarks. They're great. There's a reason. So I hear, man. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like you. I'd be like, who needs a bookmark? I'll just throw in any old shit in there. And then then I started using bookmarks. And I was like, these are great. What are they? They're perfectly designed. Do you have? Well, I I now get like sent bookmarks. Oh, like just little paper bookmarks with like promotional books and stuff like that I'm sure you do too right yeah (laughs) (laughs) and Blackwell's when they send books they always send a bookmark with it so I have a bunch of Blackwell's bookmarks and now I use them in all my books and I love them I have those from pages of Hackney and they have um fantastic quotes on them and I love I love them as objects I just I'm never going to use them as a bookmark I use them as rulers (laughs) perversity at all times carry but I mean your folding down system is perverse I'm sorry I don't even (laughs) understand it that is weird (laughs) yeah I'll take that it's definitely weird sorry not not to weird shame you or anything no please feel free darling feel free (laughs) I mean this is how my approach to systems 
is in general. I think you you know this well, having worked with me for so long. Like I have a personal relationship to systems that is not easy to explain to other people or myself half of the time. It's just I fall into a process and it works. And so I keep going with it. I think that's the luxury of working alone most of the time, right? You don't have to learn systems that make sense to other people and you can just get quietly weirder and weirder (laughs) (laughs) but I also when I'm writing in books I really do only ever write in pencil which was different when I was at school I used to write all over my books in pens which actually does um, wig me out a bit now when I think about it because I use pens do you that is fascinating to me wow I'll just use whatever I have to hand, but I'm not precious about it. That's so interesting because, yeah, I think I partly developed the weird folding system because I will only use pencil. So if I don't have a pencil to hand, I won't be writing in the book. And, I, you know, I always but carry Are you a ever going to actually erase your marks in a book? Have you ever done that? Um, yes, I have, actually. But I think that is from years of being in academia mm. where, like, m- one's relationship to marginalia is so different because then it's normally annotations to help you with your own writing and maybe you'll change your ideas or you'll change the flow of what you're interested in or you know and if you were writing in pen all the time also I think partly because academic books are so expensive that I've always wanted to be able to sell them on or give them to charity shops and um, I always take out my annotations before I do that you know what it's not when I'm writing in pencil in novels or books I'm reading now it's actually not a fear of defacing the book in pen I think it's much more about not wanting to pin my thinking down in such an indelible way because my thinking changes so constantly I guess I, I just don't see it like that I guess I see it as like a record of what struck me at the time yeah but I'm also not much of a rereader so it's less of an issue Right. Whereas I really am. And that's why my relationship to marginalia is how it is, because I'm always going back through things. Um, So I'm leaving crumbs for myself. Mm. It's really interesting, though, the thing about cracking spines as well, because people I didn't know. I did not know it was a thing that people had a problem with until I was an adult, because I grew up in a household full of really messed up paperbacks basically (laughs) and so it was never occurred to me that you might keep a book pristine apart from like um you know beautiful art books or that's a different thing I would never take a pencil to like an exhibition catalog um but I once went on a couple of dates with a guy who came back to my flat and he immediately became a detective and looked on my bookshelves for books without cracked spines so that he could basically give me shit about which ones I had for show and hadn't actually read. And I remember him finding my copy of Infinite Jest and being like, hmm, you haven't actually read this because it's pristine. And I was like, first of all, I have plenty of books on my shelves that I haven't read yet that are not for show. They're because I am intending to read them. And then it transpired that he would not let himself buy or acquire a new book until he had read the one the previous one, basically. So he had no books in his flat that he had not read. And I thought this was such a weird way to relate to books because books come into your life all the time if you like reading. And like, it felt so rigid. I, I It blew my mind. And then he told me that he never read any living writers. So needless to say, it was not a love match. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is weird. I'm getting really shrill, but really, I, I I hadn't thought about that for years. And then when we were prepping this show, I was like, oh, man, what a strange dude. Yeah. 
I had a boyfriend who said he wouldn't read Harry Potter because he had to read Moby Dick first, which always annoyed me. Oh, my God. I was like, those are two different kinds of reading experiences. (laughs) (laughs) Also, like, buddy, get a bit more secure in your masculinity. Do you know what I mean? Like, come on. Hope he's not listening. I don't think Uh, he does listen. Maybe he is. It's a long-term boyfriend who I'm very fond of um, and still in touch with. But yeah, that annoyed. That was this was an argument we had all the time. Amazing. I mean, I think Moby Dick is a book that looms large in heterosexual relationships. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but he hadn't even read it yet. That was the crazy thing. I know, that's the, just the idea thing. of Moby Dick, the great white whale. <laughs> what about, would you ever rip out a page of a book? Like, do you think of books as sacred objects in that way that shouldn't be? Well, I don't think I think of books as sacred objects. But I do like books as objects and I like having them around me after I've read them with the idea that I could return to them at another time. I mean, even if it wasn't to reread them, just to you know, rem- remember a passage that I loved and, and find it in the book. So I don't really see the point of ripping out pages. I don't, I don't think I have ripped out a page. I don't know. What would the point be of that? Yeah, I, I guess maybe if there was like a passage that you really loved and you wanted to claim it for your own I don't know I've never ripped out a page either but I have used so many library books with missing pages in them that like out there there must be some profligate page rippers is all I can imagine I guess if it's a library book then it's different isn't it because maybe if you can't get hold of the book yourself you want to keep something from it but it's very bad practice oh yeah I don't approve of that at all what about the uh the book ripping incident that happened on Twitter, I don't know, a couple of years ago, but it was our, our friend Alex Christoffi who um, posted a photograph of, I can't remember what the book was. It was Infinite Jest. Oh, Infinite Jest, right. And yeah. he, it was the paperback and he had ripped it in half or maybe even in thirds, I can't remember. He ripped it in half, but he also ripped out the end notes. Oh, that's right. So that he right. could read them alongside the two halves, yeah. Right, and so that he could take it with him in his back pocket or whatever when he was commuting. And he and he posted it on Twitter as like a funny thing and it did numbers like <laughs> completely <laughs> nuts. And I remember there were like think pieces about it and like the whole thing was hilarious. But people were truly, truly scandalized. And I wonder, yeah, would, would you ever do it? I don't think I've ever done it. I think it's a very clever solution to having a giant, book that you have to lug around. I'm certainly not scandalized by it. I I don't think it really matters. But my theory about this is actually, you know, all of these think pieces and, and the internet and Twitter outrage and everything like that. People love a controversy on Twitter that is not actually hurting anyone. You know, because it's yeah. it's so innocuous, but it's still you can still pick a side and still argue and still be kind of like mock incensed without having to hurt anyone Um, and I think this was a perfect example of this where it's like you can have a really strong opinion about something but it actually doesn't matter at all and I think it's a it's the same as that whole bagel cutting debate I don't know oh my god I missed the bagel debate (laughs) do you need to educate west they cut bagels like bread rather than um well like slices yeah Wow. Yeah. And and apparently people from New York were angry about this and there were lots of thing pieces and bloody blah, blah blah blah. Like it doesn't matter how you cut a bagel. <laughs> but people love to to be in camps. Do you know how I like to eat bagels? How? I just take bites out of them whole. That's okay. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit again weird, but I I support it. 
Carrie, you know I'm weird. I know. No, I, I think it's great that you're weird. I wouldn't love you as much if you were a normie. Maybe I'm not weird and I just know that about you. And so I amp up my weirdness to keep your love. We could analyze that in couple therapy if necessary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but back to books. So I'm going to pick a line from Agnes's question because I thought it was so great. Do you value physical books as objects or as vessels for thoughts and experiences? Well, I would say a little bit of both, kind of, as I said before, I love having books around me. I love this idea that I'm surrounded by ideas and knowledge, by the stories that have meant something to me or might mean something to me in the future. And so I've always loved having lots of books in my home. And I'm sitting actually in the tiny spare bedroom that has kind of become my office during the pandemic. And it's just full of books. And it makes me really, really happy to sit in this room. Yeah. And that's different, I think, if I had a Kindle loaded up with hundreds of ebooks. You know, it's just not the same. It's not the same as seeing all of the books around you that you have read or you will read and thinking about how much they mean to you. I love that. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think a book's soul will be like sucked out if somebody <laughs> defaces it or throws it in a mud puddle, which I actually did by mistake once with a library book and had to pay a giant fine. Oh, it was yeah. like 80 pounds or something, oh, yeah. well, dollars. But yeah, the power is in the words. It's not in the physical thing itself. And yeah. as a side note, I wrote a lot of pretty probably bad essays in college and graduate school about books as textual objects in literature. I'm obviously very interested in this question. I'm not sure that those essays have led me to any sort of um, better understanding of, of the question. But yeah, I like to think about these things. Listen, firstly, I would love to read one of those essays. Oh my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. That's the wonderful thing about going back if you know, if you went to university, going back to your thinking, I don't know, you get to encounter yourself. It's like time travel, basically. And it's inevitably incredibly cringe, but I think it's kind of a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. Although I'm always more impressed with myself than I think I will be, even if it's also cringy, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a nice feeling. Yeah. It's like, you know, we I, I spent some time on these things. I had some interesting thoughts. Yeah. Know? I also think that there is a lot to be said for remembering that like there's a boldness in youth in the way that you're able to think before you've become bogged down by the world and like yeah. it's why I'm always standing up for teenagers you know I think teenagers can be some of the most interesting thinkers because they are their perspectives are so raw but yeah like books as objects or vessels for thought I mean I think I don't have a one-size-fits-all answer to that question because I relate to different books in different ways, like truly. So there are books that come through my life that I really enjoy while I'm reading them, but they're very disposable to me. I'm not going to hold on to them. I probably won't even really remember the plots and I don't hold on to them. I don't feel a need to hold on to them physically. And if I've enjoyed them, I really love just passing them on to other people and be like, read this, it's great, bye kind of thing. But then there are other books that become truly sacred to me because the ideas within them become a bit sacred or because maybe they were given to me by someone important and they have a beautiful inscription that they wrote inside or a time that they're associated with. So like I have a copy of Simone Weil's Gravity and Grace, which has been with me through thick and thin and mm -hmm. always reminds me of our friend Steve, who mm -hmm. didn't give me this copy, but he recommended it. And I would be really devastated if I lost this particular book because of my emotional attachment to this exact version of it and like the notes I've written in it over the years and the weird folds on the pages. <laughs> um, and it's not like the book's out of print. I could get another copy at the drop of a hat, but 
but this exact version of it feels a bit talismanic to me now. And I have other examples like that, but I'm quite a superstitious person. So it's not hard for something to hook into that way of relating to it, I guess. Yeah, I think I am less superstitious than you. And I almost wish that I had more books that I had that kind of attachment to, but I don't really. I guess books that have been given to me as a gift are the exception. You know, I really love keeping books that people have given to me as a gift, especially if it was a very thoughtful gift. And Mm. I read it and it, especially if there's an inscription in it, you know, that means a lot, doesn't it? But yeah, I, 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 I get rid of books a lot. And I think because I've moved continents. So like my entire book collection that I had until I was, what, 21, I just don't have anymore. And I kind of had to start over. And so maybe I have a slightly different relationship with the physical objects themselves. I Yeah, I mean, when I was moving around a lot, I didn't keep that many. And it's only been in the last few years, last few, God, probably last 10. (laughs) But yeah, um, that my relationship to them changed. But I guess I always kept a pile of my books at my parents' house when I was moving around year after year. Yeah. And my parents moved and then I, I don't even know where any of my books are anymore. So they might be in a box somewhere. I think that's really healthy. I think that, <laughs> I think that it, like the stuff can become a burden, you know? I mean, I definitely find like, I have the hoarding instinct and I, I, I'm quite good at um, noticing it when it, when it swarms up and just, you know, kind of distancing myself from it, but I definitely have it. And also I can get really tangled up with inanimate objects. And like, I used to have to apologize to the knives and forks that I didn't choose when I was laying the table as a child. Really like, I guess, I mean, I grew up without siblings. So I turned all the inanimate objects in my house into characters and I had relationships with them and friendships and, um, and everything. And that definitely extends to books. So like, I look to you for guidance when I have to cull my my books because I find it really stressful actually because I feel like I'm disrespecting the authors or disrespecting the books or that I'm letting them down by not giving them any time or energy. I mean, it, it can get quite uh, emotional. And I think also actually I just, I'm very confronted by the fact that there's no way I'm going to be able to read all the books that cross my path because I get sent so many now for the show and for my my other kind of work and And I find that really difficult because I wish, like I wish I had time to read and honor every single one and also live my life, (laughs) but I don't. I do understand that. And I feel that guilt too, you know, just being surrounded by books that I'm never going to read. But I think it can be very, very freeing to get rid of books that you're just never going to read. Yeah, um, and not and also, keep them around out of a sense of duty or obligation. Exactly. And especially if you can pass them on. I mean, one of my favorite things is when I get sent a book that isn't quite for me or isn't I'm not going to have time to read it but I can see that it's something that's going to please someone else I love being able to just send it straight on it's such Mm. a good feeling Mm. yeah definitely so what about the different ways that one can read like by listening to the audiobook by reading the book as an object or on a kindle or or similar like do you think that influences how you experience a book oh definitely I think one of the reasons that I love books as objects is because it does feel different for me to read a physical book than it does to read something over a screen. Uh, I'm sure I have complained about this before, but one of the things that drives me nuts about reading on a Kindle, which I do a lot for work, I should say, but almost never for pleasure, is that it is very, very difficult to understand where you are in a book on a Kindle, even if you know the percentage. So like 
Because if you think about it, 50% into a 200-page book is very different from 50% into a 500-page book. And when you're reading a physical book, you just innately understand that by seeing where you are in the book and how thick it is and how it compares to other books. And I just, I hate that feeling of, I just feel kind of unmoored. I, I feel like I don't fully have like a a sense of where I am in the story. And maybe that comes back to my obsession with with structure. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, I, I also think I engage in a slightly different way. I, I love physically turning pages. I love being able to flip back and forth. I just don't think I remember as much when I read on a Kindle. And audio is interesting because, I mean, I've definitely been getting more into it. I'm not a huge audiobook listener because as I've said in the past, I just have a harder time concentrating. And I, I, I often will lose the thread of the narrative um, because my mind will wander as as I'm listening to the audiobook. But I think it actually is something that you can train. And I've been listening to more audiobooks recently and I've noticed that I've gotten better at that. And also it's just like, it, it almost feels like this wonderful cheat. I mean, in the way that I love listening to podcasts when I clean the kitchen or when I go for a run, I can listen to a book when I'm cleaning the kitchen or going for a run. And it's, that's a wonderful thing. It's like an, an extra time and a different way to experience a story. So yeah, it's different, but I'm in favor of audiobooks, not so much in favor of ebooks. But yeah. respect anyone who wants to read ebooks. I I am not snobby about ebooks at all. It's just not something I'm as excited about. How about yeah, you? it's just a different way of relating, isn't it? Yeah. I am um, I'm so glad that you are coming into the audiobook camp because that is like one of the greatest pleasures I find about audiobooks is precisely that that I can go on a huge walk and I can have this amazing company with me you know yeah and I don't have to pick and choose like because sometimes I think I can find if I'm restless even if I really want to read I want to move my body more than I want to read mm. sometimes and mm. um the fact that you can do both at the same time is like a glorious glorious technological advancement but I can't read books on screens I think it's partly because I have astigmatism so I have to wear glasses and I find screens difficult enough at the best of times so I really like to minimize my relationship to them as much as possible I mean I'm not sure I know that Kindles are different because they're not backlit but I've just never been able to get on with them and I have a very visual memory so when I'm reading it's very influenced by being able to underline and really remembering where the words are on the page as a physical object that relates to like where they are in relation to the margins and the page number and all of that which it throws me on a screen and I think also just the physical act of underlining the physical act of noting something down in the book helps you commit an idea to memory in a way that typing I find that doesn't really but I'm a pretty tactile person so yeah, I think like I prefer writing by hand than typing if I can. And so I think that's just my process, basically. I'm sure it's very different for people who grew up with screens from much younger than we did as well. I'm sure that there's a shift in, in how people relate to these things. I mean, the world is so much more digital for young people now than I mean, it really wasn't for us, was it? Because we're, we're quite old now. Um, but I love audio. I love also that you can listen to a book read by its author or being brought to life by brilliant actors. Like that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But yeah, I think I'm like you. I'm not the, the reading on screens thing doesn't jive with me. I can see why it's useful, though, you know, like I can see if you're going on a big trip or whatever, that you can load your Kindle up with 15 books and hit the road that that is that's a great idea 
Um, but I quite like the, f- I, maybe this is like old fashioned romantic bullshit, but I quite like, like I've still got the copies of the massive novels I took with yeah. me when I was traveling when I was younger and they're beaten up and they're covered in stains and like they're an object that, yeah. you know, it's very I evocative. Like yeah, I love the process of deciding what I'm going to read on a holiday and I always make a big stack of books and then I kind of whittle it down and and I always want to take too many and I always take more than I could ever possibly read and yeah I, I love that process so yeah I agree. I All right, it's Octavia and Carrie back with our cultural recommendations. So this is um, some stuff that we've done lately that wasn't reading. Of course, we've still been in various stages of lockdown here in the UK. So these are very indoors, sitting down kinds of recommendations, I would imagine. Am I right? Yeah, although I was thinking about this and I was like, were my cultural recommendations that different? Maybe an art gallery or something, but it's not like... No, I feel like you went to the theatre quite a lot. Before. Oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot about that. <laughs> you would always have some like cool musical or play that yeah. you'd seen. Yeah, no, you're right. So you like you you had a full cultural calendar. I forgot it's so long ago. <laughs> so what hit me with your the first of your recommendations? Okay, so this week I'm going to recommend two films. I'm afraid they're both kind of Oscar themed, but nobody really watched the Oscars this year, and I feel like nobody really cared about it so I would like to support these films and it's kind of acknowledged that a lot of the Oscar films were maybe a little bit more indie or like quiet or actually good than they usually are so Mm. anyway please don't think I only get my recommendations from Oscar nominations is I guess what I'm saying (laughs) (laughs) plus and these are really good films so I feel good about it The first is a film called Sound of Metal, which was nominated for a bunch of awards and won two for editing and sound, I think. I really enjoyed this film. It's on Amazon Prime, so it's really easy to watch right now in the UK. It stars the excellent British actor Riz Ahmed, um, but it's set in America. And it's about a heavy metal drummer who loses almost all of his hearing and about the journey he has to go on after that happens. And it's a very subtle and beautiful commentary on kind of starting over and accepting a new life and about deaf culture and the kind of aftermath of addiction. I really liked it because the story didn't go in a direction I expected it to and it was so much better for it. And it felt like a kind of full project, even if there was something kind of quiet about it. But I think that made it better. And Mm. the sound is incredible because they replicate throughout the film the main character's experience of of what it's like to be losing his um, hearing and how he experiences the world in a different way. That was really effective and it really worked. And I also realized as we were watching by recognizing a few places that it was filmed in the area where I grew up on the North Shore of Massachusetts, which I had no idea going into the movie. And it's actually supposed to be set in Missouri or something like that. But it was so fun to just see all of these places that I knew and could recognize. I guess this wouldn't really apply to anyone else, but I just wanted to say that anyway. It was really (laughs) exciting. (laughs) No, I love that. I love it when that happens. It's always really satisfying. That sounds amazing. I'm also just a huge, huge Riz Ahmed fan in in all possible 
contexts. <laughs> and he's so good in this. So, yeah, I, I mean, you, you could watch it for him alone. He's It's an incredible performance. What's your first recommendation? Well, um, you go high, I go low. <laughs> I I recommended this to you, by the way. Did you? Do you remember? Yeah, I... Um, like it was when we had one of those sessions when we were both feeling really down and I was like, you should watch Blown Away. Oh my God, I completely forgot yeah. what Carrie Plitt. Thank you. First of all, everyone, Sorry, did I don't, you know I don't mean to claim that Carrie has really good taste? Um, <laughs> we can cut this bit out. Sorry, no, was... we're not cutting it out. I want this in. People need to but know. But now they know that we're not fully spontaneous when we're giving each other recommendations. I think they might have figured that one out by now, babe. <laughs> <laughs> everyone I think you might know already um so well here we go so the, the seed that was planted in my brain for this program which is called blown away was planted by Ms. Carrie Plitt thank you you are it, very very welcome <laughs> <laughs> it has been the most perfect thing because I've really not had the brain space for very much at all lately um nursing duties are quite it's quite um it's quite a full uh, full mental experience I think caring for other people particularly one's own parents so I've really not been up for anything particularly challenging and this program really really surprised me because I genuinely thought it was just going to be trash for like putting on while my brain melted at the end of the days and that I wouldn't really pay attention to it but holy fuck it was so compelling <laughs> and I no know problem. that I am not the only person to find this compelling because Clearly, you told me it was and I had forgotten. But basically, it's a glass blowing competition, everyone. It is really not what you would necessarily think would be amazing. But glass blowing. Who knew? It's so risky. And the skills, the flames, like the, 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 the artisanal power of these people is incredible. Actually, watching them just make something that you're like, wow, I could never make that. I would not even know where to start trying to make that. There's something really satisfying about that. But also... Oh my God, the innuendos. Like, I'm not kidding. The fires in glass blowing um, studios are known as glory holes. And the whole way through this program, people are sticking their rods in glory holes and there's all this kind of, and they're all trying really hard not to like wink at the innuendo, innuendos, but they are just never ending. But yeah, it's great. It's very escapist. And actually as the stories kind of, as the the show goes on and they get to the different phases in the competition you learn more about the people and they all have really like meaningful stories and it just gets I mean I I'm not lying when I say I actually cried in one of the episodes <laughs> <laughs> I was so taken up with it and these people and they're like oh yeah very moving I've only watched the second series so I'm gonna go back and watch yeah. the first series I I like the second series a little bit more than the first series but I, I still liked both and okay. I love I love all the different techniques and they yeah. when they use the techniques they explain what they are and canes and marini you know, like w w yeah it's it's wonderful and and where those different techniques come from as well you know yeah. like Italian glass blowing being this like really delicate the, the kind of finest glass blowing that's a very specific kind and yeah, yeah. I, I loved it um, also it is just thrilling to watch people playing with like molten lava essentially yes. it's yeah. just amazing and then making it to, into something that doesn't look like glass sometimes which yeah. is just mind-blowing yeah um, yeah oh my god but yeah. then there's always moments where things smash on yes. their way to like the cooling that is the way of glass blowing <laughs> Carrie <laughs> did you recommend it on the show no, I recommended it after we were recording with each there other. There we go. Okay. And I was telling you I was telling you about it because you were like, oh, I just need to watch something that will make me happy. And I was like, watch Blown Away. I remember well, it the moment very Harry clearly. Carrie. It made Although me cry. Maybe, I, now I'm worried that was somebody else. 
<laughs> no, no, it rings a bell. I think okay. it is me. <laughs> yes, and it's a it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix, um, and, and it's great. And, and it's really, Canadian too, and it's so Canadian. I love yeah, it. Very, very Canadian. Yeah. Well, there we go. That's mine. What's your What's your second one? Well, my second one is another film, another kind of Oscar themed film, which is Another Round by the Danish director Thomas Vinterberg, which I think won Best Foreign Language Film. This is one of those films where you almost can't believe that the conceit was made into a movie. Um, and I, I suspect the reason why it was is because it's Thomas Vinterberg, who, of course, is one of the founders of, of Dogma 95 and has made so many amazing films like, like Festin and Submarino. The idea behind this film is that four kind of floundering middle-aged white men, all who are teachers in Copenhagen, decide to test this hypothesis of, of a little-known scientist who thought that people were born with a blood alcohol level that was 0.05% too low. And so they set up all these rules and see how it goes. And it it goes in some ways you think it will. It goes in other ways that are totally unexpected. It's a very sad film in a lot of ways, as, as you might expect from that premise. It's also very strangely joyful. And I think embraces the question of like what do we do about middle-aged white men in a really new and interesting and helpful way I would oh, say interesting. Um, it's never moralizing and Mads Mikkelsen who is is the main role is just incredible and there's one scene at the end that kind of utilizes his past as a professional dancer that is like it's incredible I mean I would be really interested to hear what addicts think of this film because it stressed me out as someone just watching people drink in this way you know and I don't know that it comes to a clear conclusion about it it sounds fascinating and potentially quite triggering yeah I would not maybe not recommend it to you actually I was thinking I could see it being triggering I it sounds fascinating like it's that sounds like something I would love to watch maybe when the world is a little steadier again yeah Really interesting idea. Do you know what I also just, I found lately, yeah, we've been watching some kind of old films and, and I've been a bit bored by how many films are just made for men about men. At the moment, I'm finding that a little bit difficult. So yeah. it's really interesting to hear you say that this is like kind of addressing that question in a new way. That sounds very appealing to me. Because honestly, when you look back at like great movies from like the 80s and 90s, they're just men, they're just men, 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 yeah. men, men, men. And listen, I like men, men are great, but like, come on. Yeah, and this this movie is very manny. But yeah. it, it feels like it's doing something new, or at least it felt that way to me. I would trust a director like Vinterberg to to make thoughtful, interesting points about that whole thing. Yeah, although I'm not quite sure what the point was, and maybe that's good. You know, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. Sometimes you want to leave a movie not really feeling that it had a clear message. Definitely. Otherwise, it can feel really dogmatic in a way that's not necessarily fun. Yeah. What's your last recommendation? My next one or last one is a podcast that I've been really, really enjoying called Maintenance Phase, which is presented by Michael Hobbs of You're Wrong About a Fame, which if you don't know, it is another podcast that I have mentioned on the show before. And this is his kind of his second project, which um, is him and a writer and journalist called Aubrey Gordon. And they've come together to debunk the toxic myths of diet culture and anti-fatness and anti-obesity. So they're both American um, writers and, and journalists and they are 
really, really well informed and very funny. And they have a really nice rapport and a very kind of easygoing, thoughtful way of talking about this stuff that is also like very nutrient rich in terms of research, which is what I really respect Michael and Sarah on You're Wrong About for doing as well, that they are, they're very skilled at digesting a lot of quite intense information in a way that's really, really pleasurable to listen to. And you always finish one of these podcasts from maintenance phase feeling way better informed than you did when you started listening, but also like you've listened in on, on a really great conversation between a couple of people who find each other hilarious and interesting, you know? So it's, it's kind of the perfect, that's what I'm looking for in mo- in podcasts mostly. But yeah, they go through these various diet fads and they're both American. So it's a lot of it is based around um, kind of American things, some of which came over here and some of which didn't like extraordinary diet foods that I've never heard of, but then also things like Weight Watchers or um, that guy, Dr. Oz, who mm-hmm. I know of because he was on Oprah a load of times, right? Um, but they, so they kind of get into these people who have made a fortune out of diet culture or um, particular eating plans, um, like the Atkins diet, things like that. And they just like comprehensively and delightedly debunk all of the nonsense piece by piece. And when you listen to them, you come away with this thing where you're just like, wow, it is wild how disordered our relationship to food and eating can be. And on such a vast scale as well, like that's endorsed by enormous multinational companies and how those companies or those individuals who write these diet books can have an effect on such huge numbers of people in tiny ways. Because I think that actually it's you'd be hard pressed to meet a person who hasn't been touched in some even very light way by the ideas behind huge diet fads like the Atkins diet or low carb eating or keto or whatever the nonsense is, you know. And they also get really, really meaningfully into how deep anti-fat prejudice goes and the kinds of terrible ways it can limit people who are fat from getting the right kind of medical care or for being respected as human beings, frankly, like on a very basic level. They get into often how ideas like BMI as a, a marker of health is so kind of rubbish and outdated and the idea that that fatness equals badness and, you know, all of this stuff that frankly, like I feel like in conversations about various different prejudices, the anti-fatness prejudice is one that is still not talked about enough and um, it's everywhere. It's so pervasive. And this is one of the kind of cultural artifacts that's out there that's doing really fucking amazing work to address that. And I just, I hope lots of people are listening to it here. I know it's got a huge following in the States, but I really, you know, Brits need to get into this and get onto it because it's a huge problem here. Huge, um, that prejudice. So yeah, it's a, this is a great way in and it's funny and like, it's very, very good. It, it will leave you very thoughtful, but it will also leave you feeling quite satisfied, basically. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely check that out. Thanks to your recommendation. I started listening to you wrong about and I love it. Yeah, I think you'd really love this, too. It's I just they have they have a fantastic approach as well. And Aubrey is Aubrey's brilliant. She's got this lovely voice as well. I could just listen to her talk and talk just like you. Oh, stop it. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I like it. <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Eddie Knight for editing and music and to Carrie for talking to me. Cute little (laughs) improv there. Um, Thank you for talking to me. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com. 
If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. Also, just a reminder, again, that we are on Patreon. Please become a patron if you would like more content from us. That's right. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with a very exciting show with the author Rachel Kushner. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. 